As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read from Psalm 33, a couple of verses. Psalm 31, I'm sorry, not Psalm 33. Uh, beginning at verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Father, this is our prayer as it was the prayer of David so long ago. We're grateful that you are near to those that are yours. We trust you for strength and wisdom for this day. Bless these moments that we have together. Father, that we will be guided by your Spirit and instructed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And Lord, please bring us together of one mind and one accord and that our lives will truly reflect your glory to those around us, loved ones, friends, co-workers, whoever they may be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 3,000 years ago, two major events in biblical history occurred rather simultaneously. The one event, which would mark the end of the reign of King Saul, took place up here in north-central Canaan, and the record of it is given to us in the 28th chapter of 1 Samuel and in the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel. The other event, the second event, which for all practical purposes would result in the beginning of the reign of King David, took place mostly down in the southern part. It began up here at Aphek and then moved to the south and occurred out in this region down here. And the record of that is found in the 29th and 30th chapters of 1 Samuel. As we read last week in, in the beginning verses of chapter 29, you have here the entree to really both events that transpire. In the first five verses of chapter 29, we discover again that David had made himself a vassal to the Philistine king Achish, who was the ruler of the city of Gath. As such, David was required, whenever Achish went to war, David was required to go with him. And so David and his army has, have marched along with Achish to this place called Aphek. Aphek is located right here in west-central Canaan. As I mentioned to you last time, it's directly east of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is right here. This was the gathering place. This is the place to which the Philistines from the various cities all agreed to gather together before they made the, their invasion of Israel. So let me read uh, from chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the lords, of the other Philistine lords. Now therefore return, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came to you, came before you to this day, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come down with you. And as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. 
So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel, meaning the valley of Jezreel. Achish, as we can tell from this passage, thought very highly of David. He had been totally taken in by David's protestations of loyalty. And we, we've already studied some of what David did and what he said he did in the presence of Achish. In fact, he was so taken in that he expected that David would ride or, or march alongside him right into battle against Israel and against the king Saul, which of course seemed logical to Achish since Saul had been pursuing David for all these years and Saul was David's enemy. Therefore, why wouldn't David go to war uh, against King Saul? Fortunately for David, the other Philistine commanders did not see it the way Achish saw it. They had not been taken in. They did not believe that David would be a loyal vassal and therefore they wanted David to leave. They credited David with the words that came from the Israelite song that he had killed tens of thousands of Philistines as Saul had only killed thousands of Philistines. Why would we want this person in our midst was the logical question. Well, when Achish had to report to David that you can't come with me, you've got to go back to Ziklag and guard the borders down south, David pretended to be very, very disappointed in not being allowed to accompany Achish and even questioned his dismissal, as I emphasized last time. Oh, but, but what have I done? Why can't I go with my lord the king? <laughs> Good thing you no know, Hollywood agents were around at the time or they would have signed him on the spot. Totally believing in the loyalty of David, I think David winced when Achish made the statement that we read there in the, in the chapter that David, you are like an angel of Elohim to me, a very messenger of the gods. <laughs> you know, how, you know what, what is David going to respond inside? On the outside, he's going to respond, thank you, king. I'm glad you believe in my loyalty. But inside, he knew that he was anything but a messenger of Elohim to him. Oh, in a way, he was. Of course, he was a messenger of Jehovah because even Achish himself in the early part of the chapter, you remember, Last week I noted that he referred to Jehovah and he referred to David as serving Jehovah or Yahweh. And therefore, in that sense, he was a messenger of God, but not in the sense that Achish intended it. That's what we find all along in this relationship between David and Achish. David says one thing and intends another, and Achish accepts what David intends rather than what really was the truth. When Achish commanded David uh, to depart the next morning and to take his men and to march back to Ziklag, I think David had to fight hard to stifle within him so that it wouldn't appear on his face or somehow in his demeanor that he was glad to be getting out of here. Because certainly he didn't want to go fight Israel. He didn't want to be viewed as a traitor to his own people. And so the utter relief that he felt, he had to kind of cover it up the best that he could. The next day, he and his men were to set out to march south away from Aphek. And as they did so, they had to be careful as they marched through Philistine territory and ran across any Philistines, be they male or female, along the way, that they didn't appear to be too jubilant about the fact that they were headed south rather than north, because certainly the word could have gotten back to Achish that David was actually serving under false colors. Unbeknownst to David, of course, as he was marching south to, to Toward Ziklag, Saul was marching north to his death. 
David was but days away from no longer being pursued by King Saul and but days away from being given the crown of Judah. This was an event that certainly had seemed for a long time to David like a promise, yes, but more like a mirage because it kept disappearing as he was chased from pillar to post by Saul for more than a decade. And now it was about to transpire. And yet he would not even know it was transpiring because he would be 85 miles away down in the south while the event which would bring the crown at least of Judah to him and ultimately the crown of Israel would be transpiring up in the north. He would be oblivious of the hour of, of Saul's death and, and he would be totally, of course, distant from the scene. As we will be moving shortly into chapter 30, we shall see that while Satan was attempting to destroy David, have to read into this and understand that behind the scenes, Satan is at work. Satan wants to destroy David. Satan wants to bring an end to the, the promises that had been made about David. That God, at the same time, had a complete handle on the whole situation. And he was guiding David to accomplish something else that God wanted him to do at the same time as he escaped Satan's clutches there at Aphek. God delivered David from a trap at Jezreel, in the valley of Jezreel, while at the same time he was enabling him to deal with another of Satan's attacks. Commentator Matthew Henry, I think, gives us good insight here. He says, God's providence ordered it wisely and graciously for David, for besides that the snare was broken, it proved a happy hastening of him to the relief of his own city, which sorely wanted him, though he did not know it. Thus the disgrace which the lords of the Philistines put upon him proved, in more ways than one, an advantage to him. And then he quotes from Psalm 37, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights. God delights in his ways. What he does, this is Matthew Henry, what he does with us we know not now, but we shall know hereafter and shall see that it was all for good. Doesn't look like good sometimes, does it? While the Philistines were marching north, again, this is the scene. They have gathered at Aphek. They're marching up the main highway called the Way of the Sea or the Via Mars, up this way probably passing either through the, uh, the gap here at Tanakh or at Megiddo over onto the plain of Jezreel and then he marched across to the western base of the uh, hill of Marah where they camp at a place called Shunem. In the meantime, Saul has marched north from Gibeah and he's on Mount Gilboa here. Mount Gilboa is uh, at the southeastern uh, end of the plain of Jezreel. This is the plain of Jezreel, the plain of Esdraelon, the plain of Megiddo whatever you want to call it. It has all those names. Uh, and, and he was camped just a little bit to the southeast of the city or the town of Jezreel on Mount Gilboa, where he could oversee the camp of the Philistines. David, while all that was happening, David was marching south from Aphek, back down along the main highway, past the main cities of the Philistines, back here towards Ziklag, which is down here in the Negev, Negev means the Southland, and he's down here in, they don't know exactly where Ziklag was, as you see the question mark there, but it was somewhere in this, this area down here. So it's out on the edge of the wilderness there. 
So when the battle was taking place that would result in the death of Saul, David was not compromising himself by even being present with the Philistine army, let alone being on the battlefield and fighting against his own people, Israel. Instead, he was off doing the will of God and enabling his own people to have greater success by defeating another enemy and rescuing some of his own people. I think this points out to us how important it is that we as God's people be not found in association with the work of the evil one in any way. The scripture tells us to avoid even the appearance of evil. Scripture also tells us that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and this is the main reason why. We're not to be tied together in some kind of, of, of a legal connection with someone who is going to be acting in a way that is defaming of the name of God and besmirching of our names because we're in association with this individual or group of individuals who are then found to be doing evil. We are in rather to be found in association with those who are doing the will of God, those who are serving Him. This time, David is saved from bringing discredit to the name of the Lord. God extracts him from this situation in which he had actually put himself. And God takes him to the south and uses him in a glorious way and, and prepares him to, to wear the crown. But the day will come, years later, when David will allow lust and pride, and fear, hardness of heart to creep in and thereby to bring dishonor to the name of the Lord. And most of us know, and we'll get there one day, I, I trust, Lord willing, that as a result, God would send the prophet Nathan, thank God for the Nathans, to proclaim that the deed that David has done, and these are the very words of Nathan, have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. <laughs> what a horrible <coughs> accusation to be leveled at the man of God. You have enabled the enemies of God to blaspheme. David was so smitten. And this is, of course, where the big difference between Saul and David begins to show up even more than it has shown up so far. And, and that is when David is caught red-handed, having acted in vile, uh, in a vile manner, he, his heart just melts and, and he falls on his face before God and he repents totally. Where Saul was like, oh, I didn't really do it. He tries to sidestep the whole situation, never repenting, never turning his heart to God. David would become so deeply convicted that he would write one of the most blessed psalms in all of the book of Psalms, Psalm 50, 51, which I think all of us turn to probably frequently to read because we empathize with David in the fact that all of us are sinners. We've all failed God. I heard the other day, and I don't remember if it was somebody in this class who told me, somebody, I, you know, Kinds of runs together after a while, but uh, they were saying that uh, somebody spoke at the mission. Oh, I, you know, somebody spoke at the mission not too long ago, and uh, after as they gave the sermon, they said that they were very grateful that the only sin they'd ever committed in their lives was when they were young they stole a stick of gum. I thought, <laughs> read Psalm 51, Mister. <laughs> we're all sinners. We've all failed. And I think there's very few of us who do not fail every day in some way because we're, we're still walking with feet of clay. 
And to be humble before our God is, is to confess our sin because it is there. It's so quick to come, is it not? I, th I think most of us, if we're honest, will say, it came on me in a moment, in a flash. Suddenly my, my inner self came out and it was ugly. And that's why God says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. And David, of course, came to know the reality of that uh, truth. And, of course, he portrays it so well for us in, in Psalm 51. Well, let me just turn to it for a moment. You all know it very well, I'm sure. But, but he says, he begins it by saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And when he says against thee and thee only have I sinned, he's not saying that he's never sinned against people as well. But, but he's emphasizing the fact that it's the sin against God that is the, what requires God's atonement to cleanse us. And then he goes on to say, thou art justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's, it's when we stand before God and say, Lord, I've really been good and you've got no right to blame me, then we're in very, very dangerous ground because God never speaks falsely. God never lies. God's judgments are always true. We have no excuse, none whatsoever. I told you the story once before uh, a few years ago about the man who came and wanted to paint the numbers on our curb. And I was talking with him, and, and he was a motorcycle guy. And, and obviously, he, from the things he said, he was also gay. And he was asking me some questions, and I was trying to be you know, very gentle with him, I guess you could say. And, and he, he said that, uh, one, that when, when the judgment comes, he's going to stand before God and he's got all these questions he's going to ask God. He's going to indict God for all these things. And I thought, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Because we'll all stand speechless uh, before the perfect one. And David under, understood that, and, and so he wrote the 51st Psalm. Well, let me read on in the first six verses of chapter 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people, these are his men, spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered each one because of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. God had enabled David to escape Satan's trap, which would have forced him either to prove his disloyalty to Achish, king of Gath, or would have caused him to become a traitor to his own people. God did not allow him to be put in that situation. Little did David know. Again, we have to realize we are looking at all of this from hindsight. 
And if we put ourselves into David's sandals, we have to understand David didn't know these things ahead of time. He didn't know that God was actually causing Achish to release him, that God had encouraged the Philistine lords to say, no, we don't want David, causing him to be released so that he would return home. Why? Because God was sending him to deliver his own family as well as those of his men from another satanic assault through the auspices of the Amalekites. On the third day, after they had departed from Aphek, David's forces reached Ziklag. Again, I pointed out to you uh, a moment ago that Ziklag is down here in the Negev, the south land of Canaan down here. It was actually in the hands of the Philistines, but it was a Judean city, a city of Judah here. And wherever it was, somewhere in, in this general area here, it's out in the area of the Negev. They had marched 50 miles. From Aphek to Ziklag was approximately 50 miles. They had covered that 50 miles in just over two days. I believe that they arrived at Ziklag fairly early in the morning of the third day. The scripture tells that it was on the third day because so much seems to transpire, transpire in that day. I believe it was probably early in the morning. They had, of course, thus covered 25 miles a day, which means they didn't force march, but they weren't dallying around either as they uh, made their journey home. Now, the Negev is basically a grassland. There are not many trees in the Negev. The Negev is relatively flat. There are places where it, where it rolls a little bit, but it's, um, it's relatively flat. And so you could just put yourself in, in, the, in the place of these men. They're marching south. They're coming out uh, of the uh, Shephelah, the, the kind of wooded hill country, uh, into the Negev here. And uh, probably about two hours, maybe, give or take, before they got to Ziklag, they could begin to see the town out there in the distance. And of course, from that many miles away, uh, it, it just is kind of a blob. I don't know how good your eyesight is, but uh, I know when I'm getting very many miles away, things begin to look a little bit indistinct. You know, it's out there, but you can't just, you know, see real clearly structures. These would not be tall structures anyway. They would be all small buildings, many tents, of course, uh, associated with the town probably as well. And so as they first began to see the site where their town was, their hearts began to quicken because they knew they were about to be reunited with their loved ones. But the closer they got, it became more and more evident that something was amiss. The skyline didn't look right. There was a blacker color to the whole place than they knew should be there. And then their hearts sank as they were finally able to be close enough to see that the city had been torched. And I think they ran the last however many miles they were away when they could finally distinguish what had happened. And, yeah, and, and they were yelling and screaming for their loved ones as they ran into the town, the torched town of Ziklag. Searching for, through the ruins, just as they're doing now and have been for two months in New York City, with, of course, no hope of finding anybody alive today in New York City, but, but searching through the ruins, hoping find someone. They had no idea what had happened. Obviously, somebody had made a raid. They didn't know who. Verses 1 to 3 inform us, however, that the raid had been made by the Amalekites. Obviously, David, when he had attacked the Amalekites a few weeks before or a few months before, had not wiped them out. He had apparently struck some of their encampments, but not all of their encampments. And so it's very possible that the raid of the Amalekites on Ziklag and the Negev was in revenge for David's attack. 
because it doesn't say that any other town was burned. And it tells us as we get into later in the chapter that other places were raided. They actually raided Philistine land as well as Judean land in the Negev. But we're only told that Ziklag was burned. Now that may be simply because Ziklag's the focus of our study and, and they weren't concerned about telling us that other towns were burned. Or it could be no other town was burned. We don't know. Maybe out of revenge, they simply burnt Ziklag. We're told that they had carried off the whole population of the town. But what is amazing about this passage, it says, no one was killed. Here are these raiders coming out of the desert who wield the sword as quickly as they blink their eye, uh, and they're there to pillage and rape and, and murder, and, and yet nobody was touched. They killed no one. They later on, after they were traveling, they probably thought amongst themselves, hey, how come we didn't kill anybody in that town? <laughs> Obviously, God wouldn't let them do it. Even though it was at Achish's command that David and his army were so far away from Zeklag when the raid came, it seems to me incredible that David would have actually pulled every last soldier out of the town. David must have left, left at least uh, a skeleton garrison. He must have left some troops to, to guide, or, uh, troops, you know, that makes it sound like guys with helmets and, you know, M16s or something, but, you know, men of warrior age who had a sword <laughs> must have left a few to guard the town. But of course, what we're going to discover as we get a little later in the passage is that after David wipes out the Amalekites, 400 of them escape. <laughs> 400 escape. Well, if 400 escaped, how many were killed? Probably a much greater number. So how many attacked the town? Well, David's whole army was only 600. Uh, if he left behind a, a dozen or two dozen guys to protect the town, what could they have done to protect the town? Probably the Amalekites struck maybe just before dawn, where, when nobody was, was prepared. And so any men who were left there to defend the city uh, were unprepared to do so. Whatever the case was, Scripture says, no one was killed. That has to be an act of God. Because that is not how raiders in those days functioned. Whatever the case, the town was desolate. And as the magnitude of the calamity began to sink in on these men, the scripture tells us that they were racked with anguish and they wept until they could weep no more. They wept to exhaustion. And then the incredible to us at least, seemingly incredible. They needed someone to blame for this tragedy. And so David's men began to look at David as being responsible. It's the old, the buck stops here principle, right? If you're the head guy, you're responsible. After all, if David had not allied himself with Achish, he wouldn't have been away and they would have been there and they would have driven off the raiders. So it's David's fault. The blame game. The blame game. What an easy trap for all of us to fall into in all kinds of circumstances. It is the natural human tendency to look for a scapegoat when bad things happened. In the first two centuries of the Roman era, Roman emperors, whenever something happened, Rome burned, an earthquake destroyed a town, Vesuvius erupted, whatever. They had to find a scapegoat because their philosophy was that the gods were angry when bad things happened. And so who was making the gods mad? 
Well, the emperor had to take the brunt of it, so he had to deflect that. And as we know, that's how the Jews and the Christians both became persecuted because they were minority groups. They were weird compared to the normal uh, Roman society. They would not worship the whole pantheon of Roman gods. They wouldn't bow down and worship the genius of the emperor. And as a result, they were easy to blame. And so you have the persecution of Nero and you have the persecution of Domitian. And then you go into the into the second century and, and you have the persecutions which occur from Trajan all the way through into the early third century and beyond. Often scapegoat being the reason given, not expressed, but the actual reason for Christians being persecuted. David was a national hero. His men knew that David had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel and they had, he had led, led them brilliantly for ten years or more. And yet, they began to agree together. Let's stone the guy. Let's stone the guy. Isn't that incredible? Seems obvious that this thought was inspired from the pit of hell. Because, you see, if Satan could get David's men to kill David, then Samuel's prophecy would not come true. The anointing would have been to no effect. Samuel would have been proven to be a false prophet. And God would have been discredited. And Satan would have won. However, in spite of all of that, the stoning of David was irrational. Not only because of what all David had done, but what David could do. He's the only man that could unite this group. And we're going to discover a little bit later, there were a lot of bad dudes in this group that were with David. They weren't all a bunch of saints. And because David would have been the only one that could unite them, get them together, say, okay, guys, calm down. What are we going to do about this situation? The, the bad guys went this way. Get the posse together and let's go get them. David's the only one that could have effected a rescue. So to have stoned him would have been counterproductive and would have probably assured the fact that they would never have gotten their families back together again. Well, I, I got a lot of things I want to say relative to that and the lateness of the hour. I think I'll have to leave it there and pick it up there next Sunday. And because I want to bring in Moses and I want to bring in Job and, and uh, some other things here to illustrate the commonality of this situation in Scripture and in the life in which uh, we live